0: One of the more interesting incidents from the public ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon happened in the fall of 1874. During one of the evening services, Pastor Spurgeon was preaching about the sinfulness of little sins, and after he'd finished explaining the text, he invited a visiting minister named Dr. Pentecost to come up into the pulpit to preach the conclusion of the message off the cuff. Thankful that nobody's ever done that to me. Dr. Pentecost was a prominent American pastor who happened to be worshiping that night at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and when he came up into the pulpit, he started to give a lively exhortation about the sin of smoking tobacco, and then to share a personal story of how he had once been a smoker, but had finally overcome that sin. Well, probably unbeknownst to Dr. Pentecost, his comments against tobacco had put Mr. Spurgeon in a rather uncomfortable position since he himself was a cigar smoker and maintained that practice to the very end of his life. Well, after Dr. Pentecost finished speaking, Spurgeon got back up into his pulpit. And with his characteristic humor, he remarked he would not allow the congregation to go home before telling them that he did not consider smoking to be a sin, and that by the grace of God, he hoped to enjoy a good cigar before he put on his head on the pillow that night. You can probably imagine Spurgeon's comments from the pulpit, this public disagreement between two very famous ministers, created quite the stir both inside and outside of the church, to the point where it was reported in the newspaper the following day that Spurgeon smoked his cigars to the glory of God. I don't doubt that Mr. Spurgeon had an uncomfortable and difficult week, and that he had lots of strongly worded letters to work through. But seeking to clear the air a bit, he wrote a letter to the editor later that week, which said the following. I demure altogether and most positively to the statement that to smoke tobacco isn't itself a sin. It may become so as any other indifferent action may, but as an action, it, it, it is no sin. Together with hundreds of thousands of my fellow Christians, I have smoked and with them, I am under the condemnation of living in habitual sin if certain accusers are to be believed as I would not knowingly live even in the smallest violation of the law of God and sin in the transgression of the law, I will not own to sin when I am not conscious of it. There is growing up in society a Pharisaic system which adds to the commands of God the precepts of of men. To that system I will not yield for even an hour. The preservation of my liberty may bring upon me the upbraidings of many good men, the sneers of the self-righteous, but I shall endure both with serenity so long as I feel clear in my conscience before God. The expression, smoking to the glory of God, standing alone, has an ill sound and I do not justify it, but in the sense in which I employed it, I still stand to it. No Christian should do anything in which he cannot glorify God, and this may be done according to Scripture in eating and drinking and the common actions of life. When I have found intense pain relieved, a weary brain soothed and calm, refreshing sleep obtained by a cigar, I have felt very grateful to God and have blessed His name. This is what I meant. By no means did I use sacred words triflingly. If through smoking I had wasted an hour of my life, if I had stinted my gifts to the poor, if I had rendered my mind less vigorous, I trust I should see my fault and turn from it. But he who charges me with these things shall have no answer but my forgiveness. Now that's a true story. A true story about one of the most famous best-loved Baptist ministers of all time. And I share it with you this morning because it helps to set the scene for the biblical text we're going to be looking at in 1 Corinthians 8. And because it forces us to ponder which of these two men were right in a disputable matter such as smoking cigars. Was Mr. Spurgeon right in his claims to Christian liberty or was Dr. Pentecost right in his outright prohibition? When it comes to disputable matters such as smoking and alcohol and tattoos, a whole host of other issues that fall into that category, these are practical and relevant questions to consider and we are going to be forced to deal with them this morning as we dig into this passage and seek to apply biblical principles to our contemporary lives and church ministries. Now the other reason I wanted to begin the message with that story is because I know it will evoke some kind of emotional reaction within you. I set you up, and I think that reaction, whatever it may be, needs to be carefully and prayerfully noted and evaluated in the light of the biblical text we are about to study. Our topic this morning is Christian liberty in disputable matters, and we're going to learn about one such issue that threatened to divide the church of ancient Corinth. And so with that introduction, I would invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 8, Listen carefully as I read the entire chapter and then flip over the page to chapter 10 where we read a few more verses that clarify Paul's position. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I remind you this is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for For us, there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat. We are no better if we don't eat. We are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now turn over the page to chapter 10. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice and do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The word of the Lord. The second half of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is interacting with a letter that had been sent to him from this church and answering a number of questions the Corinthians were wondering about and working through in their corporate body life. First question that Paul dealt with back in chapter 7 was a question about marriage and celibacy. Now as we turn the page and delve into chapter 8, we see yet another issue that was troubling this young church and that was creating disunity among the brethren. Beginning here in chapter 8, extending all the way to the end of chapter 10, the apostle is dealing with the subject of Christian liberty, especially as it relates to disputable matters that the Bible does not definitively address. Here in chapter 8, the specific issue that was creating disharmony among the believers had to do with the meeting of, eating of meat offered to idols. And we know that this situation was not unique to Corinth because we find a remarkably similar passage in Romans 14. Different churches that were gathering in different Roman cities were wrestling with precisely the same issue. And Paul is going to confront it here in this chapter. Now, in order for us to understand why there was so much fighting and so much disputing at the dinner tables of Corinth, we first need to learn something about the culture and the context of ancient Greece and Rome. In our contemporary society, the culture outside of the Western church is becoming increasingly secular and non-religious. But in ancient Greece and Rome, the culture outside of the church was an intensely religious culture. In today's world, it's not unusual for us to encounter atheists and agnostics who say they don't believe in any God or in any deity, but in the ancient world, almost everyone in society was convinced there were many gods, and that these gods and these goddesses controlled almost every aspect of daily life. Life in the ancient Roman world revolved around the worship of pagan deities, and very often this worship would happen in temples where the citizens could pay homage to a stone or a wooden statue of the god, what we might refer to today as an idol. Every Greek, every Roman city, including Corinth, had temples that were dedicated to pagan deities, and these temples were at the very center of civic and community life. If a family in Corinth was celebrating a wedding or a special occasion, it would very often take place in one of the temples. And the festivities would be dedicated to the God that was honored in that temple. And if you wanted to enjoy a special barbecue with your family and friends before killing the animal, before cooking it, you would take it first to the priest. The priest would kill it. Then he would offer it to the local god or goddess as an act of worship. Just like we read in the Old Testament, the priest would take a portion of that meat for himself and his family and then he would give the rest of the meat back to the worshiper. Now sometimes the meal would be cooked on site, it would be eaten within the temple precincts in special rooms that were designed for that purpose. A little bit like an ancient version of a modern restaurant. And if there was leftover meat that the priests were unable to use personally, it would be sold to vendors in the public marketplace. And if you woke up one morning and you really thought it would be nice to have a juicy steak or a good rack of ribs for dinner, almost all of the meat that was available for purchase in that society had been blessed at some point by a pagan priest, had been dedicated to a pagan God inside of a pagan temple. What were the Christians to do in that kind of a world, in that kind of a culture? This whole issue about eating meat that had been tainted by idol worship was very controversial among the first Christians, many of whom had been saved by God's grace out of those very same false religions, those very same idolatrous temples. This was a divisive, difficult issue in the church. It resulted in two different points of view that were often at odds with one another. On the one side of the debate were the Christian meat eaters who knew in their minds and hearts that idols in the temple were merely wooden and stone objects and therefore concluded that they could buy and eat as much meat as they wanted without any real moral or religious reservations. But on the other side of the debate were the Christian vegetarians Believers who were convinced that eating meat that had been blessed in a pagan temple was a very grievous sin against the one true God, and that by eating this meat or buying this meat, they would be participating in a form of idol worship. And so in many of the, of the early churches, the meat eaters tended to look down on the vegetarians as a bunch of people who needed to loosen up and enjoy their liberty in Christ. And at the same time, the strict vegetarians tended to look down their noses at the meat eaters as a bunch of weak-kneed liberals who had compromised with the world and fallen prey to idolatry. Serious breach of fellowship had opened up in the Corinthian church and it seems as though the meat eaters wanted Paul to enlighten the vegetarians and to convince them to lighten up. And so here in chapter 8, We encounter a few slogans that were popular with the meat-eating party were being used to win a very contentious ethical debate within the church. First of these slogans is quoted by Paul in verse 1 of our our text where we read that all of us possess knowledge. And a bit further down the page in verse 4 we encounter a couple more slogans. An idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. In short, these three slogans that Paul quotes capture the main argument of the meat eaters that was being used against the vegetarians. And very clearly, the meat eating Christians were convinced they had a better grasp on things. They had a more a more full and refined knowledge that was rooted in incontestable theological truth. Now they're writing this letter to the Apostle Paul in the hopes that he will join them in their battle, that he will help persuade all of the ignorant, ill-informed vegetarians to get into their backyards and fire up the barbecue. You know, at first glance, it is very tempting to read a biblical text like this one that is so far removed from us culturally and historically and to conclude that there is nothing of value in this text for the modern Western church. This may have been an important issue back in first century Greece. Maybe this would be a relevant issue if you're out among the Hindus and the idol worshippers in India and Bangladesh. But today in the Western world, we have moved on to bigger and better things. We're no longer sitting around a dinner table fighting over what to eat. And so why don't we just fast forward over this part of the epistle and get on to something really interesting like prophecy and speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts. Well, friends, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that even though the specific issue of meat offered to idols is no longer on the radar here in the western world, the principles underlying this ancient debate are still as relevant for the church today as they were on the day that Paul wrote them down. I've already alluded to a few of these issues. Is it sinful for a Christian to smoke? Is it sinful for a Christian to drink alcohol? Is it sinful for a Christian to get a tattoo? Is it sinful for a Christian to buy lottery tickets? Is it sinful for a Christian to go in the casino and to put a few dollars in the slot machine? Is it sinful for a Christian to watch an R-rated movie? Those are probably some of the issues you and I wonder about here in our context as Rosedale. In fact, over the past five years, many of you have asked me about these very things. But depending on the Christian subculture you come out of, the list could be much longer. In the fundamentalist circles I grew up in, it was a sin for women to wear pants. It was a sin for the church to use drums and electric guitars. It was a sin to play with a deck of cards. It was a sin to go dancing. It was a sin to use anything other than the King James Bible. The list goes on and on and on. You know, the 21st century church might not wrestle with precisely the same issues as 1st century Corinth, but you better believe that the same biblical principles apply to the issues that still tend to set us at odds today. You know, at the end of the day, this text in 1 Corinthians 8 forces us to wrestle with two key questions. Number one, what are the limits of true Christian liberty? And number two, How far should I go in trying to accommodate someone else in the church who holds a different opinion than I do? And in one way or another, every one of us sitting in this room today will need to deal with those two questions, and I believe that this text will be of great practical benefit for all of us as we seek to be at peace with one another and to glorify God in every part of our lives. Now myself, probably a few others here today who grew up and were raised in fundamentalist circles and fundamentalist Christian subcultures saw everything as black and white. This text forces us to recognize that life in Christian community is not quite that simple and clear-cut. Some things are indeed black and some things are indeed white, but in between the black and the white are many different shades of gray. Those areas of Christian conduct and conviction where the Bible does not give definitive teaching and where sincere Bible-believing Christians will not come to full and final agreement. Here in this situation, in ancient Corinth, the meat-eaters were trying their best to enlist Paul in their battle against the vegetarians. But as the chapter unfolds, we see that the Apostle Paul agrees with them in one sense and that he disagrees with them in another sense. Let's have another look at the first six verses of our text. Chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One of the claims that the meat eaters were making in this argument with the vegetarians is that they had a more sophisticated knowledge of theological truth than their opponents. The meat eaters thought they had a better understanding of things than the vegetarians, that the issue at hand was essentially an intellectual issue. Just affirm, an idol is nothing but a piece of wood or stone. Just recognize there is no God but one. And all of the objections that could be raised to the eating of meat simply fall off to the side. That was the essence of the argument they were making. And in a certain sense, the meat eaters were right. The Apostle Paul agreed with them. We find two of the Corinthian slogans in verse 4, then in verses 5 and 6 we see Paul agreeing with them. There is only one true God, agreeing that the pagan idols are not real gods, but are merely so-called gods. In terms of their biblical knowledge, their theological precision, the meat-eaters are on target. The Apostle Paul is right there with him, even giving a magnificent theological statement in verse 6 that supports their presuppositions. In one sense, Paul agrees with the meat eaters, heart and soul. But in another sense, Paul is not on their side. And as we see in these verses, he even feels the need to rebuke them very sharply. Their knowledge was basically right. Their theology was on target, but their attitude was not. The attitude of the meat eating party was by and large wrong and sinful. You see, these Christians got an A plus in Christian theology, but they got a D minus in Christian love. Their understanding of things was straight down the middle, but their attitude towards their brothers was off in the gutter. And so we see here in the first three verses of chapter 8 that Paul takes the opportunity to correct their ungodly attitude before he has one single word to say of theological agreement. For the Christian believer, knowledge is good. Knowledge is important. Knowledge is essential. But if our knowledge about God and about His Word is not expressed in a spirit of Christian love, it merely becomes a manifestation of spiritual pride and a swollen ego. The problem with the meat-eating party was not that they had wrong theology. It wasn't that they had an inadequate understanding of things. The problem was that they allowed their knowledge of the truth to go to their head and to breed spiritual arrogance and pride. As Paul puts it here in the text, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And after laying his finger on the spiritual pride that was adding fuel to the fire, Paul pulls out his apostolic pin in verse 2 and he deflates the swollen ego of the Corinthians. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Don't need to tell you, friends, there is nothing worse than a know-it-all Christian who is arrogant and conceited and proud. There is nothing worse, nothing more unlovely than an unteachable Christian who will not listen to anyone around him because he already thinks he knows everything because he already thinks he knows best. Verse 2, the apostle rebukes the proud Corinthians by informing them that the unteachable person who already thinks he knows everything isn't quite as intelligent as he thinks he is. Because in actual fact, truly intelligent people recognize that however much knowledge they may attain in this life, however smart they may become by the standards of the world, there is an incredible amount of information they have not yet mastered and that they never will master. And so if a student fresh out of seminary tells you that he now knows everything there is to know about God, about the Bible, and about Christian theology, the best thing that you can do is turn around and run truly intelligent people are confident they are secure in what they know to be true but they are not under the delusion that there is nothing left for them to learn and in that sense being an unteachable know-it-all is a form of stupidity and not intelligence it is a dangerous spiritual delusion and in the church of jesus christ it is totally unacceptable And so while the Apostle Paul is ready and willing to agree with much of what the meat eaters were saying, he is not impressed by their intellectual arrogance and smugness and he reminds them that their attitude is quite out of step with the gospel they profess to believe. Because for the true Christian, how much you know about God is not nearly as important as whether God knows you. Being known, being loved by the God of the universe is far more valuable than knowing a lot of true things about him or than having an MDiv or a PhD, however good and valuable those degrees can be. And so Christian brothers and sisters, let us never boast about how much we've come to know God or about how precise and accurate our theology has begun become compared to other people in the church but rather let us boast in the fact that the almighty god knows us he has chosen in grace to set his love upon us in eternity and to accomplish everything that was necessary to bring us in a right relationship with him the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom And the true Christian believer who is in a right standing with God will not boast in the quantity or the quality of His wisdom. He will rather boast in the cross of Christ as a humble, penitent sinner who knows that He is saved by grace and by grace alone. You know, One of the most important application points that comes out of our text today is not to make sure that we have a dogmatic opinion on every disputable matter under the sun, but rather to make sure that we have the right attitude towards brothers and sisters who may disagree with us and think about things a bit differently. When it comes to disputable matters where the Bible does not speak to us in a definitive way, learning to love and accept fellow Christians who disagree is far more important than trying to convince them that we are right or than trying to force our own personal opinions and convictions upon them. Let us never fall into the trap of thinking that theological precision and accuracy gives us the right to treat our brothers and sisters poorly because they do not see things as clearly as we do. That was the message Paul wanted the meat-eaters to hear. It's an important message for all of us to take to heart. Paul's first order of business here in chapter 8 is to put Christian knowledge in its proper place to remind us our knowledge of God and the Bible cannot be separated from our love for the people of God. But that being said, we should not conclude that accurate knowledge of the Bible or striving after precise theology is not important for the church or that the Apostle Paul did not value knowledge. Read Paul's letters, you will quickly discover that he often prayed that the Christian believers would increase in their knowledge and wisdom. Ephesians 1, for example, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards those who believe. The Apostle Paul valued true knowledge of God. We should not conclude from this opening rebuke that theology needs to take a back seat in the church or that theological and biblical truth need to be set aside for the sake of Christian love and unity. Paul is not in this text trying to pit knowledge against love. Rather, he is trying to reinforce the truth that our knowledge of God and His Word must be expressed through our love and because of our love. And that's the reason why immediately after rebuking Corinthian pride, he gives us one of the most beautiful, profound, rich theological statements that we find in this entire epistle. Have another look at verses 5 and 6 and the rich theology of those verses. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's patently obvious that Paul is not unconcerned with true knowledge and accurate theology. But here in these middle verses, he is making the point that biblical knowledge, theological precision, is almost always a process that takes time. When you first came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your biblical and your theological knowledge was a bit fuzzy and a bit imprecise. But the more that you study the Word of God... The more you interact with Christians who are a little further down the path than you are, you find yourself growing in knowledge. You find yourself coming to understand the Word of God more clearly. When I look back on my own Christian journey up to this point, I see the process taking place. Indeed, it is still taking place as I study the Word of God, as I grow in my daily walk with the Lord. As a pastor, I am a growing and maturing Christian, just as you are growing and maturing Christians. I can tell you this, friends, on the cornerstone truths of the gospel message, my views have not changed all that much since the day I became a Christian. But on many other peripheral issues, my convictions have changed as I have grown and matured in my knowledge of God and His Word. There was a time in my late teens and early 20s, I was absolutely convinced it was a sin to drink alcohol in any context or in any quantity. It was a sin to play with a deck of cards. It was a sin to go to a dance. It was a sin to have drums in the church. It was a sin to play sports on Sunday. The church that I grew up in embraced some of those convictions. And in a sense, I'm thankful looking back that some of those conservative standards that I grew up with helped to keep me out of trouble when I moved away from home and went into university. I'm thankful for it. I'm not totally critical of that. I'm thankful for it. But as I've grown in my knowledge of the Lord and His Word, I have come to change my views on some of those things. To understand the Christian life is not black and white in all things. In the Christian life, there is liberty. There is freedom. There are many issues where the Lord allows us to wrestle with biblical principles, to form our own opinions, to make our own decisions about how we can live for His glory. Now, of course, it needs to be said, there are many areas where the Bible does speak very clearly and very plainly. There are many areas of the Christian walk where black is black and white is white. And when we encounter those things along the way, the only appropriate and God-honoring response is to obey and to submit to the clear teaching and revealed will of God. And so to give you a modern example, you as a Christian believer may have the liberty to drink a beer or to enjoy a glass of wine, but you do not have the liberty to get drunk because that is explicitly forbidden in the word you cannot prove from scripture that drinking alcohol is sinful in every situation i know people have tried but you can't do it but we can easily prove from the scripture that getting drunk is wrong but here's the thing not all christians have that knowledge And so we will find in our evangelical churches some Christians who exercise their liberty to drink in moderation and other Christians who would not feel at liberty to do so. And perhaps they don't feel at liberty to do so for very good reasons. Maybe alcohol abuse was part of their upbringing or part of their worldly life before they came to know Christ. Maybe that person knows themselves well enough that they would not be able to stop at one or two drinks and therefore they wisely choose not to drink at all. Maybe in certain situations, drinking alcohol would be a stumbling block to effective gospel witness. For example, in the case of a former Muslim who is still trying to win their unconverted family members to Christ without causing unnecessary offense. Now, I use alcohol as an example this morning, not because I have an axe to grind, not because I'm trying to be controversial or offensive to those of you who don't agree with my point of view, but rather to bring the Corinthian situation into our world, into our context. In the Corinthian church, some of the members felt every bit as strongly about not eating meat as some of us in this room feel about not drinking alcohol and not smoking tobacco. These are the same types of disputable matters. And in dealing with them, the very same biblical principles apply. In ancient Corinth, some of the meat eaters were trying to force their liberty on the vegetarians. But in verse 7 and following, Paul tells them that this was not the right and the loving thing to do. When it came to the accuracy of their theology, the meat eaters were on the right track. Paul acknowledges that fact. But as he goes on to say in verse 7... Not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Just as some Christians in our contemporary context choose not to drink alcohol because of negative associations it had in their old life, so some of the Corinthian believers chose to abstain from meat for exactly the same reason. I mean, just think about it. Some of these believers in Corinth had been saved out of a totally idolatrous, a totally debauched life. And in their effort to make a clean break with their past, they felt in their heart and they felt in their conscience that it would be wrong and sinful for them to buy meat in the market that had been offered to those idols they used to worship. And so the Apostle Paul gets this. And in verse 8, he takes the opportunity to remind everyone in the debate of a critical truth. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And so in other words, Paul is telling the church the purchasing of meat offers to idols is an indifferent matter that must be left to the conscience of the individual believer. Paul does not make a new rule for the church to follow. Paul does not add a new line to the statement of faith. Rather, he leaves it to the conscience of the individual. He allows each person in the church to decide for themselves what they should do. Now, Paul knew some of the Corinthians would use their liberty to eat meat. Other Corinthians would use their liberty to eat vegetables. But whether they chose to eat it or not to eat it was not really that important. The vegetarians needed to understand there is nothing intrinsically sinful about the meat. The meat eaters needed to understand not everyone in the church has to use a barbecue. There was misunderstanding on both both sides and both sides needed to change their mindset even if they did not change their eating habits. You now as human beings many of us thrive on clear rules. We thrive on clear boundaries, precise boundary markers, because it helps to make our lives very simple and very manageable. But scripture tells us the Christian life is not always simple and clear-cut. If there is a clear and unambiguous rule or boundary laid down in the scripture, by all means, we should obey it. We should respect and submit to God's revealed will for our lives. But when the Bible does not lay down an inflexible law or rule, you and I should be very cautious to do so, and especially to go further than that and to impose it on somebody else. Because that is precisely what the Pharisees like to do during the time of Jesus Christ. In order to safeguard the law of God, in order to maintain a high standard of righteousness among the covenant people the pharisees developed an elaborate system of rules and traditions that helped to govern every aspect of life but in spite of those good intentions the extra biblical traditions and rules turned into a deadly form of works righteousness that choked the life and the joy out of the true worship of god They placed burdens on people they themselves were unable to bear. They imposed restrictions and rules that went well beyond the teaching of God's Word. May I say, friends, it is all too easy for us to follow this pattern in our modern churches and to fall into the same deadly pit as the Pharisees. Legalism is a danger for the Christian church, and it happens whenever we take our personal preferences and impose them on everyone else. Almost certainly within the vegetarian party of Corinth, there were a number of legalists who wanted everyone in the church to become a vegetarian just like them. But you will notice here in the context of 1 Corinthians 8, Paul does not have the legalists in his sights. Now he does mention them in in Romans 14, but here in 1 Corinthians, the apostle has another type of Christian in view. The Christian who refrains to eat simply because he has a weak conscience and an underdeveloped knowledge. When it came to legalists in the early church, Paul had absolutely no patience. But when he was dealing with believers with a weak and tender conscience, the Apostle Paul had infinite patience. And so he gives instruction here in the remaining verses on how these dear brothers and sisters ought to be treated in the church. You know, one of the mistakes I think we often make in evangelical churches is to assume that everyone who holds to a strict view on something must necessarily be a legalist and a Pharisee. We tend to associate stricter and more conservative Christians with legalism, but this is not always true, and we must be very careful not to jump to premature conclusions or to misjudge brothers and sisters who hold themselves to a more reserved way of life. Contrary to popular belief, Christian liberty does not mean that we must do something simply because we can do something. Just because you have permission to drink a glass of wine doesn't mean you are obligated to drink it. Just because you have permission to play sports on Sunday doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because a Christian church has permission to play drums in the church meeting doesn't mean that you have to play them. Just because you have permission to get a tattoo doesn't mean that it's a good idea to get one. And we could multiply that list with all kinds of examples related to all kinds of different issues. To have Christian liberty means that we can choose to engage in an activity or that we can choose to abstain from an activity and that we can do so without condemning one another and without being condemned. That is the main governing principle of the Bible when it comes to navigating these issues. The weaker brother is not supposed to condemn the stronger brother, and the stronger brother is not to entice the weaker brother to violate his or her conscience. In the church of Christ, there is to be mutual respect, even if there is not mutual agreement on every single detail. But that being said, Here in the closing verses of the chapter, Paul places a greater burden of responsibility on the meat eaters as they interact with the vegetarian brothers. Looking at things from a practical standpoint, Paul realized that some of the vegetarians who had a weak conscience and an imperfect knowledge would be spiritually damaged if they saw one of their meat eating brothers going into the temple to buy a steak. Maybe that person, if they were a new Christian, would be enticed to fall back into idolatry. Maybe they would be tempted to do something that would violate their conscience, something that would plunge them into guilt and shame before God. Paul's not really all that worried here about the church legalists who are going to get all bent out of shape, but he is worried that the weak and vulnerable members of the church will stumble and fall. And so to bring this back into our modern context, If my drinking of wine will tempt a known alcoholic to stumble, if my smoking of a cigarette would entice a weak brother to take a puff against his conscience, it would be better for me not to drink, it would be better for me not to smoke when that person is nearby. Now that does not mean I can never take a sip of wine. doesn't mean that the Corinthians were never allowed to take a bite of meat. But it does mean we need to be sensible about who we are dealing with and who is watching us. To drink wine around an alcoholic is probably not a very wise and loving thing to do. And if the exercise of my liberty in that matter causes that person to fall into sin or to violate their conscience, Paul tells us in verse 12, we have sinned against Jesus Christ. You see, friends, when it comes to disputable matters where Christians disagree, the onus lies on the stronger brother to accommodate the weaker brother. And if that means that we need to give up our liberty in certain situations, that is exactly what God would have us to do. Christian love is a higher priority than Christian liberty. That is the fundamental governing principle of this text. And by the way, That does not mean that you need to allow a Christian legalist to box you into a corner and to dictate what you can and cannot do. Sometimes it is very easy for us to mistake a weaker brother for a legalist, but there, there is a very important difference between the two types of people. And if you read the New Testament, this distinction becomes very plain. Like the weaker brother in this passage, a church legalist will be deeply offended whenever you exercise your liberty. But unlike the weaker brother in this passage, the legalist will not be tempted to commit a sin. They will not be tempted to violate their conscience. Legalistic church people get angry and offended when other people in the church don't follow their rules, but they themselves are in absolutely no danger of stumbling down to the ground. They want to control. They want to manipulate. Very often there is some truth to that old saying that misery likes company. And I was once there, so I tell you that from first-hand personal experience. Throughout Paul's ministry, we see him refusing to budge a single inch to the demands of legalists. But at the same time, we see the Apostle Paul bending over backwards to accommodate the brother or sister who has a weak and a tender conscience. May the same thing be true of us in our modern churches, in our modern contexts. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. A number of weeks ago, we touched on the same subject of Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. When we were working our way through that text a few weeks ago, I emphasized the truth that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it. There is a big difference between can and should, and we need to allow that difference to have an influence on our decision-making process as Christian men and women. Brothers and sisters, whenever you are confronted with a situation and you are not sure what you ought to do as a Christian believer, the very first place that you should turn, the very first place that you should look is to the word of God itself, to open up the word and to see what it has to say. In the subject of meat offered to idols, Paul tells the Corinthians, an idol is really nothing. They're not sinning against God if they eat the meat. But over in chapter 10, he adds another layer to this discussion and clarifies to the church that it would be wrong for them to eat meat in an explicitly religious context or setting. If they're looking to buy meat at the public marketplace, Paul says, go ahead and buy it. Don't ask too many questions. But if you're invited to go into the pagan shrine and participate in a ritual for the sake of a good steak, it would be wrong. It would be sinful for you to do it. You know, friends, very often, the rightness or the wrongness of an action depends on the context in which we are doing it. It's one of the lessons of this text. What may be right in one situation can be wrong in another situation. What I have the liberty to do in one context, I may not have the liberty to do in another situation. For example, when I know that my weaker brother or sister is watching me. But before we do anything, The first step to take is to search the Scripture and to see whether it says something specific about what to do. And so, for example, if you are wondering whether it is right for a Christian to visit a fortune teller or to get a palm reading, open up the Bible and you will get clear instruction. Don't do it. But if you open the Scripture and you discover that there is not a clear word of direction, there are some questions you need to ask. There are some biblical principles that you need to apply. The first, the most important question you need to ask is how this action will affect other believers around me, whether I will be tempting someone to violate their conscience and thus to sin against God. The next question we need to ask is whether my action in this circumstance will reflect positively upon the Lord Jesus Christ and upon the church to which I belong. Will my behavior in this circumstance reflect positively upon the Lord Jesus Will it help my public witness in the community or will it detract from my public witness? And then finally, we should consider how that decision will affect my own walk, my own relationship with the Lord. Is this a good use of my time? Is this a good stewardship of the money and the resources that God has so generously given to me? Is this good for my health? Is it beneficial for my body, which the Bible says is the temple of God? will this action lead me into addiction will it lead me into a form of spiritual bondage if i do it will it violate my conscience and make me feel guilt and shame before god will i regret getting that tattoo when i'm 80 years old and all wrinkled up okay those are the kinds of questions that we need to ask when it comes to disputable matters upon which the bible is unclear And so we need to make sure that our lives reflect the beauty and the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in closing this morning, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that we Christians are able to enjoy freedom for one reason and for one reason only. Because someone else came to this earth. Because someone else sacrificed his freedom and his liberty on our behalf, even though you and I did not deserve it and did not earn it. All of the rights, all of the benefits that you and I enjoy today as Christian believers are the result of our Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily laying down His rights, giving up all of the benefits that were His by divine right as the Son of God. We enjoy liberty today because the ultimate stronger brother came into this fallen and sinful world. And because our stronger brother gave up his liberty to serve a whole company of weaker brothers by dying on the cross for them, by paying the penalty for their sin. And if our Lord Jesus was willing to lay aside His liberty as the stronger brother and to serve the weaker brothers in that way, it is only logical, it is only right that you and I would do the same. For the glory of His name. Amen.